1: Armor less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, it's Ryan
2: Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, If. only in theaters May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news?
3: If you've ever used an internet browser or had a CT scan or relied on a GPS system to get around town, well, you've benefited from publicly funded science. Now, I know that the government is not altogether popular these days, but never mind the approval rating of those who craft the law, Congress is not all there is to government. There are
4: millions of federal employees, and yes, some do road maintenance and others do postal delivery,
3: But they also do this, basic and essential science research. During the government shutdown, many scientists simply had to hang up their lab coats. And that highlighted the range of scientific research that public monies provide, because now, suddenly, they weren't being provided. So this
4: gives us an opportunity at Big Picture Science to ask a bigger question about the role of public funding in science. What do we lose when it goes away? It's not just the brief shutdown we're talking about,
3: but the general decline in science funding. We'll look at that. But... What if we got the government out of science research altogether? What if we just had a bunch of private entrepreneurs foot the bill? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm
4: Molly Bentley, shutting down science in this hour.
3: The shutdown affected a whole suite of projects that we might otherwise take for granted. You may have forgotten that the EPA monitors your drinking water or that volcanologists at the USGS keep an eye on possible eruptions or that CDC scientists keep track of flu outbreaks. All of that activity briefly stopped.
4: However, for some scientists, the pause was not brief. For those who work in icy climes, they were forced to lose, in some cases, a year's worth of
3: data. Now, if you remember, we spoke with microbiologist Jill McCookie earlier this year from McMurdo Station down in Antarctica about her team's work at Lake Willens. That's a pitch-black body of water buried about a half mile under the ice in the West Antarctic ice sheet. The National Science Foundation was supporting an ambitious project, WIZARD, to drill down into this hidden polar lake to extract a sample of the water there.
4: Dr. Mikuki and her colleagues were excited to analyze the sample, because it seemed to contain bacteria, and to return to Antarctica to do follow-up studies. But now Dr. Mikuki and her team may not return to Antarctica, at least this year. This season's Wizard Field season was canceled.
0: The Wizard Project is a highly interdisciplinary collaborative project that was designed to explore the ecosystems that exist below the Willens Ice Stream in Antarctica.
3: Okay, so you're looking for what sort of biology may exist in a in in a lake that's below the ice down there at the bottom of the world?
0: Yeah. So last year we were able to drill through about 800 meters or a half a mile of ice and collect samples of lake water and sediment from subglacial Lake Willans.
3: So why was it canceled?
0: Because of the government shutdown.
3: Yeah, but could you not keep going?
0: Um, The preparation for an Antarctic field season is really enormous. We've been planning this project for years. We work with the National Science Foundation. We work with the Antarctic Support Contractor and the scientists there's hundreds of support staff that go there that set up parts of the project that are involved in getting all the pieces together, whether it's setting up the tractors, getting them running for our traverse that takes us the 600 miles from McMurdo Station to Lake Willens. There's just a lot of players and a lot of activity. And so the timing of the shutdown was just so critical that it disrupted the flow of activities. And it's now too cumbersome to continue this project this year.
3: By how much would this have to be postponed? I mean, is is this just a matter of, okay, the, the shutdown lasted weeks? Is that the nature of the postponement, or is this a little different? Because, of course, in Antarctica, there are only certain times of the year when you can do this.
0: It's two weeks in a very critical time of when Antarctica is ramping up and preparing. And Antarctic fieldwork can only take place in a small window. We do most of our work in the austral summer when there's daylight. So it's not so much the number of days, because it does seem like a short time, just two weeks. But it was just a very critical two weeks at a just a very important time of Antarctic uh, logistics ramp up.
3: The media reported that... Uh... All Antarctic research was finished for the season. That's apparently erroneous. Yeah. And which ones were able to continue?
0: So that's still in progress. And I, I really have to express what a heroic effort I think the National Science Foundation and the Antarctic support contractors are pulling off right now, trying to salvage what, what science we can still get done now that the shutdown has been lifted.
3: In the case of climate studies... And perhaps also in your field, microbiology, you're trying to learn something about the the life under that ice. Uh, Some people might wonder, I mean, why why do I need, for example, climate studies from Antarctica? I'm not living in Antarctica. Can you tell me the importance of them?
0: (laughs) Um, Antarctica can tell us a lot about the rest of our planet, right? It really can shed some light on how the overall planet works based on the dynamics of the ice sheets down there or how the ocean is responding. It's all part of the global system and Antarctica is a very important bellwether of how our planet's health is.
3: We spoke with you Uh, from Antarctica, just after your team had successfully uh, pulled out some bacteria from ice-covered Lake Willens. And the next step was to study those bacteria to determine whether, indeed, this was the first example of biology in a subglacial Antarctic lake. Have you studied those bacteria?
0: Yeah, actually, we've been spending the summer, in addition to preparing for another field season, a student in the lab, Alicia, she's been working diligently on those samples, as have the other uh, biologists on the project. And it's been really exciting, and we're hoping to finalize and publish our results real soon.
3: But, well, then, let me ask you, why is it important to know whether there were, or are, Bacteria uh, in a subglacial Antarctic lake. Uh, once again, that's very far removed from most people's daily lives, and it might be an interesting curiosity. But is there something more to it than that?
0: Well, there's, I, there's. I think there's a lot of answers to that question. But I guess I'd like to try to provide two. One, yeah, I think. Understanding microbial life in subglacial environments is important. Again, it's part of the broader ecosystem. Knowing what their function is in this ecosystem is important. It could be that they're enhancing weathering reactions that are occurring below the ice sheet, and then those weathered products end up in the Southern Ocean and affect Southern Ocean productivity, which then you know reverberates around the planet. These organisms are operating in cold, dark environments, and they probably have some very unique novel properties that allow them to survive under these constraints, if you will. And I think that's something that could be very um, important for us to understand how they're able to operate efficiently at low temperatures.
3: Well, without sounding too provincial, although I probably do, uh, this sounds like it has obvious implications for looking for life elsewhere in our own solar system, where there might be hidden oceans deep under ice, that they're completely dark, and there might be life there that could possibly resemble the sort of life you're likely to find.
0: And that that hits on my second point, is captivating the human imagination. Uh, The reason why I got into science is because I was always curious about the potential for life on other planets. And so here I am studying subglacial environments because they actually seem quite hospitable to life. And perhaps on Mars or Enceladus, where the surface might be very harsh, um, living below ice is actually quite attractive.
3: Well, finally, Jill, you're not going to the Antarctic this year. Uh, what are you going to do with those two to three months you would otherwise have spent on the uh, ice-bound continent?
0: Well, if I was staying here, I'd, I'd probably do a lot more um, mountain biking, but I'm still waiting to hear about one of our other projects that we hope might be able to be one of those salvageable um, science projects. There's a lot of effort going on right now to keep the science going in
4: Antarctica.
3: Jill McCookie, thank you so much for uh, being with us today.
4: Thank you for having me. Jill McCookie is a wizard principal investigator and a microbiologist at the University of Tennessee, and we hope that she is able to return to Antarctica
3: this year. And I'm looking forward to her results, which will be, of course, of great interest to those of us who are looking for life elsewhere. Okay, other halted government science activity included NASA. Uh, Those employees were asked to stay home as well. They couldn't even respond to work emails. Now, NASA's not just rocket jockeys. The agency's lead for research at the Science Mission Directorate reminds us that a suite of other work goes on as well.
4: NASA space activities is divided between human exploration and science, says Max Bernstein. Now, human exploration is self-explanatory, so...
5: Science covers everything else.
4: <laughs> okay. Right?
5: So, that is to say, all of the really cool stuff.
4: <laughs> you <So think> we... <laughs> sending astronauts into space isn't some of the cool stuff?
5: Okay, okay, yeah, I, I guess I should be careful about what I say. No, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to say it. Science is all of the really, really cool, far out, cool stuff. We are dozens of Earth observing satellites measuring all of those things that help predict storms in the near term and climate change in the long term. We are the Messenger spacecraft at Mercury, and Cassini at Saturn, and Juno on its way to Jupiter. And, and the New Horizons spacecraft on its way to Pluto, and the rovers on Mars, and the giant space telescopes that look out at distant galaxies, and the heliophysics, the folks who study the sun and predict solar events. I understand that of
4: all the government agencies, NASA had to furlough the highest percentage of its workforce.
5: Yeah, that's right. I'm told that something like 97% of the NASA employees were furloughed, and that was the highest proportion.
4: Now I wonder if we could look at more specifically what sort of research had to go on hiatus for just those two weeks or so. I understand the people who collect meteorites to study had to leave their their meteorite bags at home.
5: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. There are a number of people who study meteorites. The um, astrochemistry labs at Goddard Space Flight Center and at Ames Research Center were closed, and the Astro Materials Branch at NASA Johnson, and in all of these places. They study meteorites and interplanetary dust particles, and they study the chemistry of these objects. And part of the reason why these materials and meteorites are so interesting is because many of them are extremely old. They're as old or older than the solar system itself. So. They can tell what the conditions were like at the time of the formation of the solar system. And in some cases, the meteorites that they find are actually pieces of other planets that were blown off in giant impacts and eventually came to Earth. We're talking about
4: questions into the into the early universe, and there is a telescope that is designed to answer some of those questions. It's the James Webb Space Telescope. It's supposed to be launched in 2018 or so, but I understand that uh, work on that telescope had to stop for a while.
5: You're absolutely right. The James Webb Space Telescope is the next great observatory. You can think of it as the maybe the next Hubble. And work on the James Webb Space Telescope requires access to NASA facilities that were shut down. So, for example, Tom Green, who's an astrophysicist at NASA Ames Research Center, was quoted by Scientific American as saying that a key test that required a low-temperature vacuum chamber was missed during the shutdown period. And, you know, that may not seem like a big deal. You might say, well, you know, you'll just do it when you come back. But you have to understand that really big projects like this are planned out years and years in advance down to the day. And so it's not clear that we will have the chance to go back and do all of the tests that we wanted to do.
4: Well, Max, I'm going to challenge you here a bit because you just outlined some really interesting research that NASA funds and that the government funds, but some people may suggest that NASA's research is a frill, that it's not essential to the
5: country. What do you say? Well, the the first thing that I say is... I admit that what NASA does is not essential for the bare minimum of life. You don't need us to keep a roof over your head. Sure, that's true. But the things that we do are the things that great societies should do. There are incredible, amazing, inspiring, breathtaking images of distant galaxies and of planets that are inspiring and we should do. Now, let me hasten to add that there are a number of things that NASA does that, in fact, the society really does need. The Earth observing that relates to predicting storms, which certainly saves lives. And there are many technological spin-offs that come out of NASA research. So there's all kinds of businesses that benefit from the science that NASA does.
4: So so Max, you've made the case of why NASA scientific research is important, but why should the government fund NASA? As a thought experiment, what if private entrepreneurs were to fund this agency and the government got out of the scientific research business altogether?
5: Yeah, the, there is no private industry that would ever pay for the research that we do. The part of NASA that could be commercialized has been or is being commercialized. So we talk about the companies that are building the launch vehicles that are going to take the next generation of astronauts to the space station. And that's great, but that's not science. Max Bernstein, thank you so much for speaking with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having
3: me. Max Bernstein is lead for research at NASA's Science Mission Directorate.
4: Coming up, a Nobel Prize winner credits public funding for making his upcoming trip to Stockholm possible.
3: Also, a project draws on public and private funding to ease your rush hour pain.
4: It's Shutting Down Science from Big Picture Science.
3: A lot of science stopped during the shutdown, but overall, funding for science is in trouble. Consider the National Institutes of Health, better known as the NIH. You know, that's the organization working to cure such afflictions as cancer, HIV, arthritis. Their researchers work in institutions across the country. It was NIH funds for basic science in the
4: 1970s and 80s that helped a young cell biologist named James Rothman start a lab at Stanford University. There, he sought to answer some fundamental questions about how a cell works, namely
3: its internal transport system. Dr. Rothman discovered just how proteins can leave a cell and dock with a target elsewhere. When this process goes haywire, well, disease can result— This work has led him to book a flight to Stockholm this December. He's a co-recipient of this year's Nobel Prize in Medicine.
4: In his public statements after the excitement upon learning the good news, after the exclamation about how hard it was to believe the good news, Dr. Rothman immediately began making passionate pleas for increasing funding of basic research and warned us against what we might lose
3: as those monies dry up, as they are now doing. He calls it a crisis for American science.
6: Uh, Let me put it to you this way. If you're a highly qualified scientist at a top institution in this country doing cutting-edge work, your chances of getting a grant from the NIH are about 5 to 10%, depending on what part of the NIH it goes to. And historically, it was even just a few years ago, your success rate was much higher. And this has really uh, had a profound effect not only in reducing the kind of research that's going on in basic science, forcing everybody to be more conservative, more incremental, less forward-looking. But it's also had a chilling effect on young scientists who are trying to get started. And even then, even younger uh, folks in college are looking at science as a career and saying, I wonder if I really should do that. These are the kind of
3: setbacks that could take uh, a generation to overcome. Well, let me see if I understand the problem. The government funds a lot of basic research in your field, cell biology, basic research, just trying to understand the cell, which later might lead to useful things like cures for disease. But is the problem just the total amount of money being allocated, or is it simply that the competition is greater so that the chances of any particular person getting that money are smaller? Uh, There isn't one single
6: problem. There are two major problems. The first problem, of course, is the total amount of funding for biomedical research that the NIH provides. Now that budget is actually a very generous budget, and it has benefited the American economy and public health over decades. But in the last 10 years especially, that budget has uh, been flat or declining, and certainly declining in real terms when you account for inflation. I've seen numbers as large as a 20 to 30% decline in purchasing power from the point of view of the scientists that are doing the research. But that's just one of the two problems. And the other problem, which I think is equally as concerning, and maybe more so, is how the money is allocated within the NIH budget. You know, are we structured for success? Are we spending the resources as wisely as we can to invest in the projects that will
3: have perhaps the greatest risk, but the greatest impact in the long term? Well, Jim, when it comes to getting an NIH grant, I'm a researcher somewhere. And I'm not doing, if you will, the trendy research. I just got some idea for something that might be interesting to do. It's tabletop science, for example. It might only involve me and uh, you know, one or two other people. Am I subject to the same sort of review as, uh, the, if you will, the big
6: science guys? Well, anybody that does investigator-initiated research, that starts their own project, comes from the grassroots, you know, this is what we're really great at in America, is being entrepreneurial and grassroots. The little guy uh, has has a good idea. The the NIH has always provided for that. But in the last five to ten years, there's been a gradual accumulation of more and more so-called big science projects that have a different quality. They're organized by the government. They're top-down projects, the most recently being, for example, the BRAIN Initiative. There have been other initiatives that relate to discovering of drugs uh, that the NIH is trying to do. Many people think that that's really something that belongs in pharmaceutical companies. No one of these initiatives is problematic. They're all good, but they come at an expense. And the expense that they come out is the goose that lays the golden egg, which is uh, fundamental research in basic science. We're not. I think the scientists are not out there like a, a union or an employee group saying we want to have full employment, we want higher wages. That's not what our concerns are about. Our concerns are about maintaining an operation and growing it in a modest way, not a, knowing that there are economic constraints today. Growing it in a modest way, but a way that sustains the long-term economic growth, okay, and public health improvements that the NIH has produced over a generation
3: for the American public and indeed for the public around the world. Jim, you recently won the Nobel Prize for your work on uh, protein transport in cells. And there were other Americans up on the dais there uh, getting the Nobel Prize as well. It looked like another triumph for American science. And yet you're saying this is actually, uh, if you will, honoring the science policies of the past. And I take it by that you mean that because of the funding difficulties today, we may not be producing the Nobel Prize winners of the future. I can guarantee you that that's the case. All right. So how do you explain to somebody, say a non-scientist that you meet at a dinner somewhere, why this matters? Because perhaps they would say, hey, look, I don't really care where the science comes from, as long as there's some company somewhere that'll turn it into, you know, the cure for a disease or whatever it is. Who cares if if the science comes from China or Singapore or some other country? Well, you know, that's frankly
6: a legitimate point of view for the scientific result in and of itself. But, you know, what the science generates, in addition, is knowledge, know-how, experience, trained people. Someone like uh, Randy Shekman, my co-laureate, or myself, or Tom Sudoff, have trained hundreds of people. And those people, in turn, have trained hundreds of people. And that multiplier effect gives rise to a kind of um, an ecosystem of science and technology. You mentioned that you're calling today from the Silicon Valley. I don't have to explain to people in the Silicon Valley the value of having Stanford University and the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of California, San Francisco, for example, uh, in close approximation and what that has generated for the economy of the Bay Area and indeed for the economy of the country. Now, Had that science been done someplace else,
3: some other country would have been the fortunate beneficiary of all of that. How serious is this problem? Is the United States still the place to do cutting edge research? It's a
6: very serious problem. It's not too late to recover because we're just on the on the beginning of the decline. We can recover, but if we don't act soon, we will lose a generation of researchers. I personally recommend my postdoctoral fellows to look abroad, where science is supported,
3: especially for young people in a stronger in a stronger way. You earned your Nobel Prize on the basis of uh, research into protein transport, which sounds a bit to me like over the road trucking or maybe unit trains. Can you tell me a little bit about? Uh protein transport and why you were interested in it and what it means. Well, absolutely.
6: uh, You know, you might have guessed it's one of my favorite subjects. (laughs) The uh, cells in the body, you know, need to communicate with each other effectively. If your liver and your brain and your intestines are somehow out of sync with each other, you're not going to be very happy, right? You're going to have a headache and a stomach ache and God knows what. So uh, how does that happen? How do they stay in sync? Cells release messenger molecules, one of which is probably very familiar, uh, insulin. Now, it all has to be timed correctly, the right time and the right place. If the insulin were released too soon, for example, when you weren't eating a meal, then what little sugar you had would be taken up, and you would lose consciousness and have, what? well, it's diabetic coma. So the body releases substances called hormones uh, in the brain, Our nerve cells communicate by releasing neurotransmitters to allow one nerve cell to talk to another so that we can create functioning circuits. That underlies every thought, action, and cognitive intent that we as human beings have. And then within the cell, uh, every cell is a highly organized place. It also has to communicate from one part of the cell to another, and it transports molecules, proteins, from one location to the other. And what my colleagues and I, who were recognized this year by the Nobel Committee in Medicine and Physiology, discovered really was the underlying system that accomplishes everything that I've just described and imbalances in which contribute to diseases as uh, prevalent as cancer, diabetes, and various psychiatric diseases.
3: Well, lastly then, Jim, this research was made possible and i think you did it at stanford university in the 1980s it was made possible because of government funding of basic research is that not true it's absolutely
6: true my work has been generously funded by the nih throughout my career and it's had an enormous impact and it's the fear and the reality that that would not happen today for the next young scientist that is the greatest concern
3: jim rothman thank you so very much for being with us today
6: Seth, it's been a pleasure to join you today, and thank you for your penetrating questions.
4: James Rothman is a professor in and chairman of the Department of Cell Biology at Yale University, and he's a recipient of the 2013 Nobel Prize
3: in Medicine. He makes the case for public funding of science, but that's not the only funding model. A collaboration between public institutions and private companies, Nokia and Navtech, have designed a GPS system that has helped ease the pain of the morning commute.
4: Alex Bayan is an electrical engineer and computer scientist at UC Berkeley. He and his team designed the Mobile Millennium Project in 2008, when most traffic information in the San Francisco Bay Area came from static sensors built into the pavement or radar devices mounted on highways and bridges.
3: Bayan's team swapped that for smartphones, whose users would download some free software that reports their position in exchange for a real-time map of traffic flow. And it's been a big hit. Now this system is poised to help drivers nationwide.
2: The principle by which it was started was pretty simple. The idea is that a lot of people have smartphones with a GPS, and these smartphones can collect people's trajectories, speeds, and so on. And from that, if you had a lot of these, you could deduce what the speed is almost everywhere where there's people with phones. So that's a very simple principle. But in 2008, it was quite new. And so when we started that project, the goal was to show that it would work in real life.
4: So the idea is that your smartphone shows, because it has GPS, it shows where you are but also it shows your, your velocity and how fast you're moving in a car, perhaps on foot too if you're walking. And then all that information is transferred to a central cloud.
2: Exactly, you collect all this information from the different phones and with the proper algorithms you can figure out from all that information which one is noisy, which one is not necessarily correct and filter it out so that you can come up with a very nice speed map of how the flow is flowing on the freeway or on our trail roads at the time.
4: The information that you collect is anonymous. You're tracking the cars and their location, but not you don't have the identities of the people inside them.
2: That is absolutely correct. I think one of the major principles of crowdsourcing in general is that people have to feel comfortable about sharing their information. And so anonymity is very, very important. In fact, at the time when we started Mobile Millennium, we had a paradigm called the virtual trip lines that enabled us to not even track people from their origin to destination, which is also a very important thing.
4: So describe for me what this map looks like. You're tracking all these cars and how they're moving and where the traffic jams are. What does the map look like?
2: So the map is a map that a lot of your listeners have probably seen before. A lot of apps today by the major firms that are in that space show you a color map of traffic. Red means lots of traffic jam. Green means uh, free flow. So Mobile Millennium was one of the first instantiations of that paradigm.
4: The work that you've done here has changed how we monitor traffic in the San Francisco Bay Area. To what degree has it been considered for adoption nationally since the Federal Department of Transportation did contribute to this project?
2: So this, when it was created, was a San Francisco project deployment. We tried it here because it's a very high-tech area. People were excited, and, and this was the mobile internet explosion. So it started in the Bay Area. Today, Our algorithms run in many other apps that are run by companies in the private sector, and these have been deployed nationwide. So even though it was born in San Francisco because that's where we are, today I think it's fair to say that the technology lives everywhere in the U.S.
4: Now, you won... Two awards for this design, I understand, and also the other project that you've done with sensors from the National Science Foundation. One was its Career Award and also the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. Now, was the National Science Foundation involved at all in funding this work?
2: The National Science Foundation was essential in getting my research program started. The National Science Foundation funds very high-risk, high-payoff research. The career program that you're referring to is a phenomenal program that funds early career researchers that are just starting their labs uh, in the United States. And I personally greatly benefited from their support.
4: Now, that was the public support, but what is unique about this project is that it was a combination of public and private support that led to this work. Some of the public sources were, as you said, the National Science Foundation. You had the California and the Federal Departments of Transportation, and you're here at the University of California, Berkeley. However, there were some private companies that were involved. Nokia, which is an information technology company, and Navtech. How did the partnership between private and public funding make this work, these new traffic maps, possible?
2: I think the unique combination that allowed this partnership to happen is the fact that transportation lies at the intersection of the private and the public sector. Now, that's mostly because the transportation infrastructure is mostly owned by the public sector, uh, federal or state. But a lot of the technology that has breakthrough potential for transportation is owned by the private sector. So in order to create such an ecosystem, it was essential to broker such a partnership. And the University of California, Berkeley, was the ideal broker for that. But having the participation of Nokia and Navtech, which were the leaders at the time, in that field, was key because without them, we could never have developed that technology that quickly.
4: And what do the private companies, Nokia and Navtech, what do they get out of it?
2: From their perspective, I think they got very significant exposure to the public sector in that field. And the other thing they got is access to the university resources, very talented students, and the ability to do a very quick deployment under the umbrella of the university in California. And that was essential to prove the technology.
4: In this era of diminished public funds for science, scientists are looking for other alternatives to fund their research. One is this public and private partnership. So on one hand, you're able to solve problems in real time. But isn't there also a concern about bringing corporate money into a university in that it might taint the research or at least undermine its credibility?
2: Not at all. I I think it's quite the opposite. There's two points in your question. The first one is about the public funding and the second one is about the private funding. Let me start with the second one. The Private funding is, I think, essential in terms of keeping the university in sync with technology because technology development is mostly driven by the private sector, at least in some areas like the mobile internet and so on, or or mobile phones. So not working with them would be, in a sense, very detrimental to the relevance of the research. And so from that perspective, I think there's really no conflict of interest whatsoever. It's just um, if they are the leader in a field, you just want to partner with them. Now, specific to the public sector, I think what's really interesting is, yes, you're right, It's very unfortunate, but the public funding for pure research has gone down in the last past years. However, I think the rebirth of this is really to work with operational agencies. There is a lot of operational agencies in the United States, in particular departments of transportation, who are in need of breakthrough, who are in need of research and help on how to run their operations more efficiently and so on. And I think Berkeley has been very successful in establishing very strong ties with the departments of transportation in a way that helps us because we can fund our research that way, but also helps them a lot because we solve a lot of problems that they might not be able to solve in-house.
4: Alex Bayan, thank you so much for speaking with us.
2: Thank you.
3: Alex Bayan is an electrical engineer and computer scientist at the University of California in Berkeley. You know, Molly, I actually use this system all the time, and I never knew where the data were coming from. I couldn't imagine they had that many sensors spread out all over the highway system.
4: And what's interesting is that it doesn't require that everyone be monitored and tracked. Only 2% of the drivers need to be monitored, and you have an accurate map.
3: Well, that says something about how many people are stuck in traffic. You only need 2% of them to tell you what's going on.
4: We've heard about the benefits of publicly funded science and public-private partnerships. Coming up, meet a scientist who thinks almost all scientific research should be turned over to the private sector.
3: Also, the view from across the pond of America's role in international science partnerships and what happens when we don't play our part. It's shutting down science from Big Picture Science. It's no secret that privatization in general is popular, and in the realm of science, even NASA has turned over the building of rockets designed to go into orbit to private industry. And who could forget the race between a government and a private effort to be the first to sequence the human genome?
4: So is it a good idea to get government out of the basic research business altogether? Pat Michaels is the director for the study of science at the Cato Institute.
3: Pat, we've been hearing about the benefits of government-funded science. We've also heard about public-private funding partnerships. Is there a case to be made for doing away with public funds altogether, just privatized science?
1: I think there's a case for privatization of science, probably not in its entirety. Although you can make the argument that basic research, which people would think would have no particular economic gain, was once largely supported by private industry you know the government really only got in the funding business of science uh, about 1940 and beyond
3: well what about things like i mean that come to mind such as in my own field astronomy right there's no profit in astronomy particularly and yet it leads to things that in you know eventually prove useful because it leads to developments in physics It's been done by private individuals in the, you know, 200 years ago, but today, you know, a telescope might cost a billion dollars. Who's going to do Mm -hmm. that?
1: I guess you better call up Bill Gates. (laughs) You know, the fact of the matter is, I keep on thinking of Bell Labs or something like that. I'm sure they had a pretty snazzy state-of-the-art, state-of-the-science optics program when they were up and running and winning Nobel Prizes, and I'll bet that there were applications of those optics programs that could be used in astronomy and remote sensing and things like that. And some philanthropists might think that would be just a wonderful thing to do.
3: In your opinion, Pat, what's wrong with having research publicly funded? I mean, what's the downside of that?
1: Well, first of all, I can't quite find in the Constitution where it says that the government must be the sole provider of funding for technology and research and development. I just don't see that. And secondly, we have had a model where the world, in fact, largely had private funding of science, and science moved forward. And thirdly, the public funding of science, particularly through the various federal agencies, can lead to political distortions that may actually harm science.
3: Can you give me an example of
1: that? I can give you an example of a thought experiment. Uh, Let's talk about global warming. Now, global warming is a very lucrative scientific field at this point in time. And your advancement in the university is largely predicated upon the amount of funded research that you publish and the quality of those publications. Now, if you submit a paper on climate change that says, well, you know, my analysis indicates this issue is kind of really overblown who's going to review that paper the other recipients of the climate change funding i have a feeling they have an incentive to give that paper a very vigorous review and you'll probably get an outright rejection but if you submit a manuscript that says this is a terribly important problem and it's worse than we thought and more research is needed i guarantee you that that paper is going to get a glowing review a light review, and will probably be accepted with minimal revision. So that results, then, in a skewed scientific literature, which is used by those who perhaps want to impose regulations as the basis to impose regulations. One of the ways that that might be ameliorated would be for there to be more private funding. Right now, the government is the sole purveyor of research funding for climate, and I have a feeling that the government has its biases, so why not broaden the base of support for, say, climate science? That would result in, you know, people with different dogs in the hunt, different rationales for wanting to look into this problem. I bet that that diversity would create more rapid scientific advancement than simply a monolithic monopoly provider.
3: Most of the basic research that uh, at least I know about is conducted by academics. Uh, They're, you know, they're at a university somewhere, and many of them are indeed running on government funding, okay? But on the other hand, these people are all pretty competitive. Uh, The fact that they're getting their money all from the U.S. Treasury, as opposed to other sources, often, uh, doesn't mean that they're... You know, not trying to get better science out of the deal. Isn't it already kind of competitive?
1: It's competitive, but the fact of the matter is that the pressure to maintain that funding— I was a university scientist for 30 years. That pressure is enormous, and so that leads to a tendency to not rock the scientific boat, to not irritate your colleagues, because they are going to review your proposals.
3: Well, finally, Pat— Are there any areas of basic research, and let me suggest a couple, maybe elementary particle physics, for that matter, astronomy and so forth, that uh, you think should be publicly funded? Well, again,
1: I will say that it's kind of hard for me to imagine a huge linear particle accelerator or any kind of particle accelerator being funded privately. That just seems like it's a bit much. You don't know what you're going to get out of these things, okay? So there's not all that much of an incentive. On the other hand, I can tell you that historically some exceedingly good, Nobel Prize-winning basic research in very obscure areas of physics were undertaken by places like Bell Labs and Science Advanced just as well.
3: Pat Michaels, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you. Pat
4: Michaels is director for the study of science at the Cato Institute.
3: So what's at stake in this debate over how to fund science? Well, as James Rothman said earlier, one thing that's at risk is America's role as a leader in science. And if the U.S. loses its edge, it will quickly fall behind other countries.
4: But in some cases, American scientists are working with international colleagues on research projects. The James Webb Space Telescope is one example. So when American funding dries up, it's not just Americans who have to hang up their lab coats. Our international collaborators feel the pinch as well in a number of projects, some designed to study the universe, others basic
3: biology. BBC reporter Roland Pease has covered those stories and more, and he says that the theatrics of the U.S. government shutdown was, to his eyes, indicative of a larger problem in the stop-start nature of how American science is funded.
7: I think that what this episode underlines is that there is a problem with the way that the American system approaches funding. You know, the idea that there might be some kind of political interference that suddenly means a project gets dropped. The International Fusion Project ETA was massively hindered by that because... American participation is incredibly important in nuclear fusion. They, You know, fantastic expertise there. And, of course, America does have the dollars to back it. But when, um, because of disputes with France over international relations, meant that they started saying, hmm, we're not sure if we want to do that or actually we're going to change our funding priorities this year. For countries that are used to planning finance and projects over decades this suddenly becomes a real problem and I think that what's going on in the states at the moment underlines that.
4: Well Roland is that actually the problem is the span of time over which these these budgets are laid out and the partisan bickering aside that the budgets for scientific funding sometimes hop from year to year to year and as you just pointed out some of the European budgets span over decades.
7: Yeah, there was an interesting article by one of the high-ups at the European Space Agency last year about collaboration with NASA, for example, on the James Webb Telescope, a very important NASA-led project on which the ESA ESA, is a collaborator, and it spends uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on its contribution. And then suddenly uh, NASA, because of the funding problems, Moved the goalpost. Suddenly said, actually, we're going to delay it, or maybe we're going to cancel it. It's getting too expensive. There's a collaboration on Mars exploration called ExoMars. That was a European led project. The Americans were on board, and then they pulled out. Uh, the Russians have stepped in in that case, and that sort of shows the international importance of being a stable partner, a really famous one. We've just seen the Nobel Prize being awarded to the Higgs and the Higgs particle. And the Higgs particle is in a way seen as a uh, in, uh, as a European success because it was discovered at CERN in Switzerland. But back in the 90s, the Americans were building in Texas the superconducting supercollider. And every year, there was a battle in Congress about whether they to go on funding it for another year and eventually it limped to a halt and uh, firstly America then was unable to win the prize shall we say for finding the Higgs particle. A lot of American particle physicists were enormously frustrated Europeans who had considered collaborating with the American thing felt let down. It left the way open for CERN then to go ahead and Particle physics is now, in many ways, a European mission.
4: And you're saying it was that close to being an American mission back in the 90s?
7: Yeah. I mean, it was a very expensive project, and maybe it shouldn't have been built. Maybe it was too ambitious. But nowadays, you don't necessarily think the place it has to be done is America, because it's the only place that can.
4: Does that suggest that that America's reputation as being a leader in scientific research is waning?
7: I don't want to put this too hard at the moment, you know, America spends about 50% more than any other country on science, and that would be China is the next one behind. So in absolute terms, it's absolutely spends more than all the competitors. In terms of publications, about a fifth of the publications come from America, as far as I know. Um, About a third of the cited publications, in other words, the publications that people actually care about, are published by American researchers. So America is absolutely a powerhouse, and you see this when you hear the Nobel Prizes every year. They are dominated by American scientists. I think what people are worried about is that by withdrawing from that in 10, 20, 30 years, maybe that will all change, particularly when countries like China are putting so much into science now.
4: Well, finally, Roland, as a reporter for the BBC, you've covered a lot of science stories. They've taken you all over the world. You spend only a fraction of your time talking about the budgets behind those research projects. Turning to the science for a moment, is there one science research project that really stands out in your mind as being pretty great.
7: Well there was one story that really for me it just charmed me the way it showed how international science is. Uh, we were talking about the discovery of the Higgs particle and about the problems with the superconducting supercollider. and about 12 years ago I guess it was the previous European experiment at CERN called LEP was just in its dying days and it was about, they thought, to discover the Higgs particle and they were desperate to find it. Meanwhile at Fermilab, the big particle physics accelerator in uh, near Chicago, they were just about to start up new experiments and they were worried that the Europeans might get there first. In uh, Geneva, there was an American by the name of Chris Tully. There was a Greek guy who had a post with an American university in California who was posted in Geneva. And so they were sort of representing America, working in Europe. And uh, the, Chris Tully in particular said, oh, I think in CERN, we're really going to beat the Americans at this. We can really do it. Meanwhile, we spoke to people in Fermilab in America, and they were Italians. And they were saying, oh, no, 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 in Europe, they won't discover it. It'll be, uh, it'll be an American discovery. And I just thought that absolutely encapsulated The international spirit, it wasn't a question of where they came from, it was a question of where they were working, how they were working, the people they were working with, that scientists just travel the whole world to pursue their science.
4: Roland Pease, thank you so much for speaking with us.
7: It's a pleasure.
3: Roland Pease is a BBC science reporter. So
4: we hear the perspective from abroad about science funding in the United States, which seems to be different than it is in Europe and in Britain, models for public funding and public-private funding and private funding of science. The bottom line is that our science funding is going down and the money needs to come from somewhere.
3: One thing that strikes me, Molly, is the ideology here that, you know, you have to fund science this way or you have to fund it that way. Humans don't work that way. I think we have to recognize that we're practical beings, and let's do things that are practical. Clearly, there are big science projects that really aren't going to get done. I mean, think of the Large Hadron Collider or the James Webb Telescope. They're not going to get done without public monies. There are other projects that really should be in the private arena. Look, the idea here is we've got to pay attention to science because the big problem is that science funding is not increasing at the rate that it has to to keep our future secure.
4: We can make public. Our gratitude to Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance for their help with this program.
3: We're grateful to support from Google. Also, Rena Sholsky, david and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
4: Your ears have been attuned to shutting down science. You can find more Big Picture Science on our archive page at bigpicturescience.org.